Nasty Jits podcast, I believe episode 109. Wow. Uh, That's impressive. Got Professor Mike. Good afternoon. We've got Professor Daniel Strauss. That'd be awesome. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> Just about fit to that chair. So you just finished the guillotine seminar here. Yeah. Uh, how did it go for you? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. I really did. Um, you know, this is a, a seminar that I have. This will be around about 131 times that I've done this exact seminar. Um, it gets refined, um, whenever, whenever I design a new seminar, it, it, it gets refined very heavily over the first, kind of, it, it gets refined very heavily and then it slows down slightly. So I'd say over the first sort of 10 times that I do a new topic, I'd usually design it in my head for many months. Then just before I do the tour or when I start delivering the seminars, I'll um, when I used to teach full time, I'd spend a couple of months teaching the material. Um, in for the m- most recent tour that I'm doing now, where the new seminar is Mount, I'm I'm not teaching full time anywhere, so I had to ask one of my friends to let me teach for a month. <laughs> so I said, just let me teach for a month, so I can practice teaching this 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 new seminar. Um, and then the first sort of ten seminars, it kind of can change quite a lot. And then there are small adaptations I make throughout. Everyone is I I like doing this format where it's the same topic and the same you know, core, core instruction, because it means that I can refine it as the time goes on. That reminds me of kind of the way comedians do their tours. Yeah. It's kind of like this burst in small, smaller groups to kind of refine the mm-hmm. content. And then it's pretty much the same with a few adaptations. Exactly. Throughout, right? exactly Depending on yeah. the audience. Yeah. Have you, have you found anything interesting about changing from teaching um, like normal academy classes to teaching predominantly seminars is the way you teach change a lot or how does that yeah completely it is night and day um and so i, I i've been teaching jiu-jitsu for 16 years yeah. um, i started teaching jiu-jitsu when i was 16 as a blue belt and um and i have been teaching ever since i taught uh like a class i had students basically from 16 up until 29 uh yeah, 29 in, in 2019, I stopped teaching. And uh, 2019, I stopped teaching sort of a couple of months before COVID uh, to travel. <laughs> and then COVID happened, I couldn't travel. Uh, but up until that point. So it's really, really different. Um, but I've always taught, I've, I've taught seminars and I've taught a lot of seminars. Um, you know, 2016, 17, 18 onwards, I was teaching a lot of seminars. Um, I used to just do a yearly seminar on a single topic. I think I was the first person certainly in the country to um, come up with that concept of um, designing a product which was the seminar and then being able to simply deliver that same product at multiple places. Um, For me, I just thought that from a marketing perspective, it, it, it made a lot of sense because people knew exactly what they were getting. One, they knew the topic, but more importantly, when someone, uh, you do my guillotine seminar today, that person, someone who came to the seminar today could go to someone else and go, this seminar was great, let's get him in to do the same seminar. And it's gonna be the same seminar mm. for, for the most part. Uh, it's gonna be basically identical. So what I found, um, 
I did this for three years in a row, first with the guillotines, then with the butterfly guard, and then a side control one. Um, and it was just getting bigger and bigger every single time because um, I'd, I'd book maybe 15, I think the first year I put like 15, but then people were coming to them, going back to their home gym, saying we need to get him in here for a guillotine one and adding it on. So I've been doing lots of seminars for many years. There is a big difference between um, teaching seminars and teaching classes. Classes, you can really slow down and you can really take your time. I used to teach, when I was teaching full-time, it would be four, four classes a week. And I would teach basically a maximum of three techniques pretty much a week. So the Monday and Wednesday classes, Thursday was a sparring class. Monday and Wednesday class was um, <coughs> teaching uh, the, the Monday would be the first half of the week's techniques. Wednesday would be the second half. Tuesday would be both of them together because it was a longer class. But you can really take your time. So a three-hour seminar that I do here for the guillotine would take me um, probably a week to two, maybe more. Two or three, maybe four weeks sometimes. The content that I would do in a <coughs> seminar would take about uh, uh, potentially up to a month. So it's a lot more. The biggest difference really, and it's something that I've thought about bringing in, and I've actually, over the last couple of days, and this is a nice thing as well, like I've, been, I've done hundreds and hundreds of seminars, probably, probably past the 300 mark in terms of seminars um, over all the different topics, but I'm still changing and adapting and learning and trying to, to kind of grow with it. Um, I don't do any sparring in any of my seminars and never have. Um, and there's a good reason for that. Like I want to spend all of the time on the mats with everyone. When you spar, you just spend 100% focus on a single person. So maybe if you have a room of 20 people and you do 45 minutes sparring, you maybe roll with five or six, seven people and everyone else is left out. So I don't do any sparring in seminars. And I always used to say, if people want to spar, just come and train with me, which I can't do right now. But hopefully when I have a gym in the future, I will. Um, but one of the big thing, the big difference between seminar and classes is that you can't get the specific sparring or like live drilling stuff. And uh, the live drilling stuff is, is so useful for really internalizing and learning on a deeper level the, the, the content that you're teaching. So for the first time ever, yesterday I did some, literally for the first time ever, literally yesterday, um, I taught, taught a seminar, Butterfly Guard seminar, and something that I was thinking about doing, and I had them do just one minute each of one specific drilling drill, um, where there was a little bit of resistance or, or, or like organic movement. Um, so there's, there's a possibility that I will design a seminar that will have that in mind, potentially redesign. The problem is I can't fit that into any of the seminars I currently have. They're already too long, but potentially redesign seminars that I already have, but having the specific drilling like organic movement, a little bit of live grappling as a core component of it. It's something that I've been toying with mm. the last couple of weeks. That's interesting. That was an incredibly no, long question. No, it was, it was a very was, simple question. It was good. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's many people who could speak to who has taught like that many seminars, especially yeah. on like, like those kind of few select topics. Yeah. I'm sorry to jump in, but I think that's the reason you've taught so many. Yeah. Because you think so deeply about them. Mm. That's what came across to me in that seminar we just did the way you can articulate the detail and you it's well put together it's mm. professional and i think that's what perhaps marks you out as someone who d delivers this in a different way to most other people yeah uh, and that's probably why that. you keep getting those extra bookings because yeah. it's quite clear this is a well put together product 
it makes sense. It's not just made up. It's not we're flying over here, flying over there. It's like, no, no, this is what you've wanted me to come and teach. Mm. Everyone's expected, everyone walks away fulfilled. Yeah. It's been amazing. Yeah, I, pr- I really appreciate that. And, and and you're right, like a lot of thought has gone into it. And I think um, I really respect um, anyone's time who comes to a seminar or anyone who comes to a class. Uh, I mean, a lot of people very kindly say that I'm a good instructor. I go, well, I wasn't born a good instructor. I've been teaching for 16 Correct. years. Like if you'd come and, <laughs> you'd come and done a class with me when I was uh, a couple of years into it, I don't think you would have gone away thinking I was a particularly good instructor. I, th- I, I like to think that I was okay, uh, but I look back on that now and, um, you know, just the attitude is different and the thought was not as much there. You know, I used to teach, um, for many years I taught once a week. When you teach once a week, you can't have a plan because what, what can you do with once a week? It's nothing. So I taught once a week and people would come in and I go, what do you want to do? And they go, I want to do side control escape. And I go, oh, that's crap. Let's do arm bars, you know? And, 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 and I just teach, and the instruction might be there and the details might be there, but the thought behind it isn't. Um, when I first started in 2015, I think, yeah, 2015, I started teaching a program, Nogi program, four times a week, five hours, then suddenly everything changed for me as an instructor because I could really put a lot of thought into how I can best develop um, my students. And then that same mentality went into um, doing my seminars, which is create the best product that I can possibly deliver within a two or three hour period. Yeah, you man. I appreciate that. I like that. I think, you know, when I think about my coaching, I think about it in the same kind of journey of mastery as you try and get in jiu-jitsu. So like I've been coaching two years, so I'm probably like, maybe towards the end of my white belt career mm. of coaching type thing. Um, and I think it was like a separate path where to get good at coaching, unfortunately there's not like loads of content out there of how mm. to become a better coach in jiu-jitsu. So you kind of got to steal bits from like, oh, this is a rugby coach who has these kind of ideas. Obviously like GB has their instructor certification stuff. Yeah. Um, something I thought would be interesting that's come up in the podcast recently. It was last podcast we talked about with uh, Adissa and uh, Professor Lewis. Like the... When we had Robert Drysdale on the podcast, awesome. and um, he talked about with his uh, opening close guard book, like to kind of split how judo split off and then became more, uh, you know, like judo what is today, and then the old judo, and then judo what is today to like Brazilian jiu jitsu. Mm. Feels like Brazilian jiu jitsu is now splitting off to like uh, no gi only kind mm. of submission grappling, and more like what predominantly what we focused on, like the traditional based gi key routines, obviously with you commentating Polaris mm. and training exclusively Nogi, do you have much perspective on that? Do you feel that kind of shift in um, jiu-jitsu? Where do you think it's going to be going in the future? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, the whole gi and Nogi debate has raged on since the beginning of <laughs> jiu-jitsu history. Um, you know, it, the question was like, <laughs> is jiu-jitsu a different, is gi jiu-jitsu and Nogi different, jiu-jitsu different? And I think, um, I kind of think only time will really tell whether that divergent path is going to split off even further into two completely different styles. I think one of the big things um, and the difference with judo is the historical aspect of judo. Judo was very much set in what, like we knew, we know what judo is. We knew what judo is. We knew what judo was. We know what karate was and karate is. So you can really make a legitimate um, comparison between the traditional style and a modern style. With jiu-jitsu, it's so modern to begin with. And it's sort of, I think when, one of the huge characteristics of jiu-jitsu is that it was 
created and really came into popularity in the internet era, which just meant that the evolution of it has looked completely different to any other sport because very early on, I mean, yeah, it was VHSs or deep, you know, stuff like that before even DVDs were out, but people were able to share techniques in a way that they weren't able to do when judo was invented or when karate was invented or traditional jiu-jitsu or aikido or anything like that. So um, the, the, the sharing of ideas and then YouTube comes about and instructionals and just a lot of this stuff is built into the culture of it being a modern sport. So um, that, that, that's an interesting question. It's very possible that if we look back, uh, if, if we were to look back in 100 years time, it could be possible that the gi jiu-jitsu and no gi jiu-jitsu were seen as completely different sports, potentially with completely different names. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when I started grappling like 22 <clears throat> so years ago, people, it was predominantly gi, mm. but everyone trained a little bit of no gi and gi. But now, you said in the seminar, you've not trained in the gi for seven years. Yeah, but I trained in the gi for many years you prior did, to but, that. Yeah. But now yeah. my point is that people are choosing a more exclusive yeah. path so that it that diverge has happened mm. and will it come back i don't know will it come full circle will you well, discover the gear again will you put one on yeah. and think i've missed this or i can't imagine you... that <laughs> but maybe so maybe but, maybe but, but, that's but, answering the question really. yeah but i think the question isn't will it come back that is a question but i don't think that's the question the question is will it run close enough parallel that it can still be considered two mm. sides of the same coin that's what we were discussing exactly or will it diverge so far away that it can no longer be considered the same art? That's the question. We can't, you know. And I think that that was, yeah, exactly right. I and mean, that's what we were discussing. You know, has it changed and you've got the art on one side and the sport on the other? Like, is that the way we're going? Mm. Like, say, any time will tell. But, 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 but I, uh, yeah, it's a good question. I argue that if you were to look at traditional Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Gracie jiu-jitsu with a big... Um, emphasis on self-defense stuff. If you were to look at the art of, of, of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, modern sport gi is further from that than modern sport no gi. That's what I actually believe. Modern sport gi is further from the roots than modern sport no gi. Modern sport no gi is submission-based, it's takedowns, it's pre like the modern game right now. Uh, where it's less about leg locks, it's more about, you know, obviously there's still a lot of leg locks in there. Whereas the modern gi jiu-jitsu game is reverse de la worm guard and yeah. Bolo, kind of completely indistinguishable from, uh, completely distinguishable from uh, from what, um, <coughs> you know, Andrew Gracie doing a Bolo. you just wouldn't see it. And you wouldn't see it on the street, right? So no. like that kind of whole idea that was that the martial aspect of it, the martial art isn't mm -hmm. there, is it, if you're just using lapels and spinning upside down? Yeah. Potentially, that is more sporty, isn't it? Yeah, 100%, yeah. Interesting. Something we could talk to you about is is marketing within jiu-jitsu, because mm. I think that's obviously something you do really well, but we also see people who are now at the pinnacle of sport, and I think at one podcast we argued is Gordon like a better grappler or a better marketer kind of thing. What role is marketing now playing in jiu-jitsu? Or brand more broadly, yeah. I'd say. So it's a good question. Uh, I get this question a lot because, um, but but this is, <laughs> unlike my seminars and teaching in jiu-jitsu and stuff, this is not something that I put any thought into. This is something that's happened very organically for me. Um, I've not tried, I've never done any, like any conscious, intentional marketing, branding or anything like that, really. 
everything I've done has just been, yeah, I mean, I've made some logos and some t-shirts and stuff like that, but I've never like run ads, like done stuff that you would do as part of a business. That's not gonna be the case for very long. I'm, I'm, I've, uh, because I've started working with a separate company that will be taking over all of my online content and all of my online stuff that I'm gonna be doing moving forward that are marketers um, to, to kind of make it a, you know, a bit more commercially viable, let's say. Uh, but I was just kind of lucky in a respect that um, I came up with a funny name. <laughs> Where did the name come from? The name was just, uh, do you remember the uh, Jiu-Jitsu style on the magazine? Yeah. I was meant to be the front cover of the first issue. Right. And I got knocked off by Mark Walder. And before <laughs> I could make my way back onto it, which I'm sure I would have done eventually, it was finished. I was good friends with the, the guy who made it, Cannon Medcroft. Uh, and now it's gone. He needs to bring it back just to put me on one, one episode. But anyway, I was meant to be the first issue. And um, I was in the first issue. I just wasn't the cover. And there was a bio. And he'd written out a mock one before we'd got all the answers. And he had the nickname at the time. I was doing a lot of strength training. I had you know a lot of grip training. Nicknamed the gorilla. I was like, that is terrible. <laughs> I can't be having that. So I thought, okay, it's time to come up with a good nickname. And we uh, at the gym we had a system of of of, of finding nicknames um, based on everyone had crazy nicknames in the gym. And uh, we tried out a few. And the, and the raspberry. I mean, I liked raspberries and I liked apes, and it just stuck. It just stuck. It just sounded good. We tried out a load of them. That one sounded good and we went with it. Uh, so that was the origin of the name. But it's so ambiguous that I very often give completely ridiculous stories <laughs> and people just eat it up. Does, uh, does Mark Walder still hold that over you when you see it? <laughs> no, no, he doesn't have a clue. I didn't even care. I mean, that was kind of even more frustrating. But Mark's an awesome guy. Um, so, yeah, so, so I, had, I had like a unique name. I mean, that, that was my intention with the name was to I wanted something I guess I was thinking about branding without thinking about branding, which was I wanted a name that if you Googled it, the only thing that would come up is me. If you Google Rosary Ape, there is, it would be my podcast, my seminars, my YouTube, it, whatever. It would just be me. Um, whereas if you Google the gorilla, it's like, it means nothing, right? So um, that's always a, a, a good thing to do. But then you kind of had to roll with that and, and, and embrace that. Um, came up with some cool logos. And I guess... Um, I was already at that point, or just prior to that point, was um, getting into like, pod so after that, because it was a Raspberry podcast, uh, I was already maybe doing a bit of commentary work. I was quite well known on the scene. Um, so I could just funnel all of that stuff through a funny nickname and it's memorable and it's the Raspberry podcast and whatever that. And, you know, my, you know, grip trainers is ape strong and, yeah, you just roll with it. I think there'll be there'll be marketing. Well, my wife's in, in marketing. That's what she does. I'm pretty sure there's a, a concept around brand building that colour object is an actual thing. Yeah. So you've got the colour, the kind of raspberry, and an object, and that like you have the golden fleece or the whatever the yeah. blue whale or whatever. That's like a thing. Yeah, and I use I use a uh, like I do like raspberries. I do love apes, uh, and I like like the colour red. So like all of my stuff is. Red and black are like the colors that I like, so it keeps in with the branding. Everything's kind of on point, but it's very naturally on point. It's not like um, particularly, uh, um, you know, meticulously designed that way. I feel like we won't be doing our listeners justice if we don't talk about your training in some regard, because like your Instagram's amazing, 96,000 followers, phenomenal. Thank you. Um, how did that start? We've spoken briefly off camera around grip training but how did you get into that what so was that training? all about grip training that strongman kind of style that functional fitness so so i started 
Uh, <clears throat> when I started jiu-jitsu, I weighed 55 kilograms. Wow, that's lighter than you, T. <laughs> a lot lighter. Just... I, was, I mean, I was, I was 15, um, but I, I was super small. Um, I was very unathletic. And I just get smashed by everyone because, you know, I was, I was the youngest person there. I was the only kid there and I was way smaller than everyone. I remember thinking, literally, I remember this thought like, one day I will be 70 kilos and then I will do the crushing. You know, literally, because these guys that were beating me up that were giants to me were 70 to 75 kilos. I mean, you look at a 70, 75 kilo guy now and I'm like, you know, I feel bad a little bit bad if I'm rolling with him, you know, uh, because I'm a lot heavier now, obviously. So, so I started off uh, that and then I read a book called um, Dinosaur Training by Brooks Kubek. That's like the Bible to me and that changed my, you could say it's changed my life, kind of gave me this perspective on strength training and the dinosaurs in dinosaur training of the old time strongmen that are now extinct and just gave me this idea and grip training was this big thing. Um, so I bought like a thick handled barbell um, and a couple of weight plates and that's all I had and I was using cardboard boxes to bench off of and but I was just hitting it and, and, and building the strength and then uh, loads of this stuff was about a strong grip and obviously in jiu-jitsu you, you, a person on the street you might tell them how effective a, a strong grip is how useful it is you don't have to tell anyone who trains jiu-jitsu they know how important grip is so all of these people were just ripping my hands off of them every single time thought I want to try and build my hands I want to build that connection and I basically ran with it ever since and and, and just got more and more into it more interested in it and uh, uh, yeah it's like a when, when, when your life is jiu-jitsu you kind of feel like at the certainly when I was younger I felt like I couldn't I didn't have time and energy and enough free thought to do anything outside of jiu-jitsu um, so if I could have a hobby that was still helping my jiu-jitsu like strength training like grip training then that was the perfect combination and, 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 and I fell in love with it. Yeah. Do denim hot pants make you stronger? 100%. <laughs> That's the question I wanted to know. The joke about it is, the, maybe not the hot pants, but the denim, there's this a principle called enclosed cognition, right. which is um, what you wear can change your psychology and your psychology can certainly change your physicality. Uh, and the test was basically they gave like a... Um, gave some load of people, uh, doctors' lab coat, uh, painters' smocks or whatever they call them, uh, a you know all of these different things, and the and then they did tests. The people who were given the lab coat, they were more analytical. The people who were given the painters' smock, they were more creative. Wow. You know, they were the same thing. That's amazing. They're just lab coats, right? But they just you know they, this is a, a it makes you feel a certain way there for your performance. Yeah, exactly. It's like that uh, Zimbardo mm. study where he puts them all into like police kind of uh, uniforms. Exactly, exactly. And they all become like it's the idea of dress for the job that you want. It's a hundred percent true. It's like a placebo, um, uh, uh, and um, you know, uh, honest placebos also work when you know that this is having a psychological effect, but it continues to have it. Uh, so jeans are hard wearing. They're tough. You know, they're cowboys and they're strong men and stuff like that. <clears throat> and um, whether, I don't know which came first, maybe the enclosure. But now, if I, when, I, when, I, when I'm away on tour, uh, a lot of gyms don't let you train in denim and boots like I used to. I've been kicked out of a few gyms. So I just put on normal shoes and, uh, and, and tracksuit bottoms. Um, I'm 100% weaker. Really? But if I'm at home uh, and I'm squatting in... Um, something else, shorts or something like that. If I put jeans on and I squat in them, I can instantly feel stronger. 
like 100% genuine. I remember the last time I did it, we were doing some squats and I put my jeans back on. I was like, I these, these squats literally <coughs> feel easier now I'm, doing, now I'm in jeans. Wow. Yeah, so it like, it, it's a bit of a joke, the performance enhancing denim. But 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 I genuinely believe in it. Whatever you whatever you see as the trait, whatever you see the clothes as as the trait that you want to uh, uh, exhibit. Um, if you think that smart people wear glasses and you want to be smart, chuck a pair of fucking glasses on. You know, a genuinely enclosed cognition, legit thing. Love that. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to keep going for for a little bit longer, but you need to go. It's five to now. If I don't get home on, in time for dinner, but I've been away all weekend. I've not had any time off, and I need to go. Am I am I leaving halfway yeah, you, through the podcast? I mean, it's up to you. Why how much trouble you want to get into at home? I'm happy for you. Does Sarah watch this? Probably not. Probably. <laughs> Probably she'll be checking up with me. But look, I'll sign off and say goodbye. I'll say a massive thank you to you again, Absolutely. mate. I'd love to spend more time with you. Oh, so mate, if you're well, up here or you want to invite absolutely. us down, yeah, 100%. we'll train together. Dude, thank you very and, much for uh, having me. I appreciate it. I'll be buying your instructional. Oh, if you awesome. want to learn how to have a better grip or use sandbags, this man's got instructionals online. Get involved. Cool. Right. Cheers, we'll mate. We'll do that another time or something. Nice one, buddy. Grab some food. Hope you're not in too much trouble. Yeah, let's crack on. We do a few more minutes. Awesome, man. Um, so, what's like the funniest thing? Because you have such a varied role now, right? Because it's not just like your yeah. academy instructor. You do all sorts. What's like the thing that you get the most enjoyment from? Uh, it's a good question. I love teaching. I really do love teaching. Um, I I miss having a class. I mean, I'm trying to get a gym at the moment. I just heard back two days ago that my they were going with someone else. Mm. Uh, which is which is sad. So I'm, I've been actively looking to open a gym for the last two years. It's just really hard finding somewhere, and somewhere with the right usage class is a massive thing. Um, but I can't wait to, to to be able to teach full time again and have students because there's nothing better in the world. Um, but I love doing seminars like this. I just I love teaching jujitsu. I'm really I just really passionate about it and really enjoy it. Um, the the commentary stuff that I do a lot of is also fun. My role on so I do commentary. Uh, for three shows, Polaris, which I've been doing for quite a few years now, um, for Cage Warriors, which I started doing three years ago, almost exactly, the start of the pandemic. But we've done like uh, close to 40 shows since then. Right. Uh, like a lot of shows, it, 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 I've done like 10 times, or 10 times, but five, probably five times more shows for Cage Warriors than Polaris, even though I've been doing it for half the time. Um, and for Enyo, which is, uh, we've just done two shows, the UK's only all-female grappling show, which is really cool. Um, and commentary is really fun. I like doing it. My role for Polaris has changed, though. It's, I don't want to say less fun, but it's harder work. So I used to be color commentator. We had Josh Palmer as, as, as the host, and now I, I do the hosting. So I do like the role, uh, but it is so much work. <laughs> like, I need to do hours and hours of research um, on all of the fighters, prelims and main card. And I mean, we had, um, that was, how many fighters did we have? 20, 10 prelims, I think. Maybe more, 12. We're talking about, I had to do research on like 30 fighters. Oh. Um, and have it all on my laptop and stuff. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Um, so research on loads of fighters and then just the actual night is really hard because so I do colour for Cage Warriors it's easy mm. um, I just chill out Brad Wharton who's an absolute pro I've learned so much about commentating from him 
working with in the last three years. Um, he is doing all of the communication with the um, director and the production truck, and he's doing the throw into the fights. He's doing the tell of the tape. He's doing the walking out. And I just can chill out. Mm. <laughs> I could just chill. And then when the fight starts, we chat. Yeah. And maybe we'll chat a little bit in between, but it's easy. With Polaris now, that used to be my role Polaris, with yeah. Polaris now, that's all right, mate. With, you can just keep going. Just yeah, go yeah. So with Polaris now, um, it's I, I have that role. Right. So I, I'm like always in communication with the production team, um, like in my ear. Um, I'm doing the walkouts, I'm doing throwing to ref, I'm doing decision, I'm doing reads for fight pot, you know, I'm doing everything. So it takes a little bit of the fun out of it because you're not as relaxed as you would be, but I still really enjoy it. So they're very, very different things. Yeah. But like I can teach, uh, I can teach um, seminars every day of the week, like I'm doing at the mm. moment. I'm <laughs> commentating every day of the week, no way. Do, do, you, do you think your podcast and the commentating help you teaching at all? Oh, good question. And uh, no, I think the other way around. Uh, uh, no, that's a lie, actually. The podcast, I would say no, is nothing to do with anything, really. Um, I would say that the teaching and the understanding of jiu-jitsu certainly helps with my commentary. But I would also say that my commentary, especially in MMA, because I'm not used to watching national, like uh, the top European... I'm used to watching like the world-class UFC top of the top, mm -hmm. but I hadn't watched a huge amount of uh, regional MMA and European MMA. Um, so I've learned a lot from watching um, MMA grappling and understanding positions. Why is this happening? Why is this not happening? Um, and that I'll reference actually quite a bit in a lot of my seminars, a lot of my teaching. So yeah, I definitely say that the commentary, and you'd think more the Polaris, and certainly the Polaris a little bit, but I would say if anything, um, the MMA, the Cage Warriors commentary has influenced my understanding and my teaching more than Polaris has probably. Right, Maybe because right. I've done way more of it. Yeah. Who do you think had the biggest impact on your own teaching style? Or who's like a really good teacher for you? So I haven't had many teachers. I started um, with my instructor, Nick Brooks, uh, who sadly passed away end of 2021. Yeah. Um, but he, he he's who I learned jiu-jitsu from, really. I, I, I've had no other instructor apart from him. The closest to that that I had was David Numa, who, I would, who has mentor, certainly mentored me at times. Um, and was someone that I've learned a lot from. So I'd say he's secondary influence, but far under what, what, what I've learned from Nick. Um, really, but I stopped being instructed quite early in my jiu-jitsu journey, maybe like my mid-20s. So you're talking like, no, probably earlier than that, early 20s. Maybe like seven or eight years into my jiu-jitsu, I wasn't really getting much instruction. Mm. I was starting to, 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 to become quite well-known, especially in no-gi. Nick fucking hated no-gi. <laughs> um, so I kind of just started to teach myself and I was already teaching at that point. So uh, I think a lot of my teaching, a lot of my jiu-jitsu knowledge is self-taught and I think a lot of my teaching style is self-taught as well. It's just, I wouldn't say that my teaching style is similar to what Nick's was even though I learned how to teach from him, certainly. Mm. It's like two questions here, I think, but mm. 
I'm in a similar problem position where I teach far more than I attend a class now. Yeah. Almost like I have to kind of go far out of my way to almost get into a class in a way. So I guess one question would be, how do you find learning outside of a class environment to be well? And the other question alongside that is how the traditional role of lineage in jiu-jitsu, like mm. Mike's under Victor and I'm under Mike kind of thing. But in terms of like classes I actually go to that Mike's teaching, it's very, very minimal. But I'm like constantly studying jiu-jitsu from like Danaher or yep. Chip Buckland, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. How is that changing in like the modern era for you? you think? Yeah, I'll answer your first question. Mm. Your, sorry, your second question first. And then you'll have to remind me of your first one. So the second question was about lineage. Um, and something that came up in the first, like, episode three of my podcast, really early with Simon Hayes, was, like, what he calls hidden lineage. Mm. And I really like the idea of it, which is your lineage is uh, a generational through each instructor. So mine would be, I mean, technically my lineage is Roger. I'm black belt under Roger Gracie. And Roger from... Uh, uh, or, uh whoever it was, um, Carlos, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, Carlos, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, that that's the lineage, but that's not actually my. That's not who I was taught by. Like yeah. Roger never taught me anything. Um, he was just my instructor's instructor. So my lineage of who I've been taught by is not even the same as my lineage of what it would say on a piece of paper. Yeah. My lineage was Nick, and then Nick learned some from Roger. And a little bit from some other people as well. But then we all have a hidden lineage of, I loved watching Marcelo Garcia when I was younger. He's probably had more impact on my jiu-jitsu game than Nick ever did. You know, mm. even though I've never ever done a class with him and I've met him once through a photo, you know, uh, never even really had a chat with him. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the idea of lineage <clears throat> is almost... It, 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 its relevance is dependent on the individual. If you train under Roger Gracie and never go to a, you know, occasionally go to a seminar somewhere else or maybe watch a little bit, but if you are under Roger Gracie five days a week and you're on, you know, Roger Gracie online or whatever, then your lineage is Roger Gracie and it legitimately is. Mm. But if you um, train at Roger's, but your main instructor is someone else and you know, and you go to these morning classes and Roger's not there and you watch loads of Lachlan Giles um, instructionals, then yeah, it might say Roger Gracie, but the reality might be that you've been influenced all over the place. So I don't think we can get too bogged down on the idea of lineage for anything other than this is the person who signed off as you being on that level. That's, that's what was your first question? First question was when you're not in those kind of oh, yeah. class environments. Yeah, if you're not being you taught how do you learn? Yeah. It sounds like you're doing everything right. I mean, yeah, you're learning from... I think once you get to a certain point and you have the... The, 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 the role of a jiu-jitsu instructor to their students for the, the first phase of their journey is to teach them how to learn. Teach them the fundamentals. Okay, what's, what's the role of your parents? Is essentially, you, you, you parent your students to begin with. Um, you're going to teach them uh, how to walk, how to talk, yeah. how to run, maybe how to catch a ball, how to tie their shoelaces, how to go to the toilet. But once they get to, um, and then, you know, 
once they get to 10 or 11 and they're going and they're in primary school and then they're in secondary school and then they go to university. Your parents aren't teaching you quantum mechanics. Your parents aren't teaching you coding, yeah. probably. I mean, some of them, maybe <laughs> they are. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? So your role as an instructor, I believe, is to primarily be the parent to the child mm -hmm. to get them to a point where they're able to learn from others. Yeah. And then once they're at that point, perhaps you are able to continue to teach them stuff that you specialize in. Let's say uh, I'm a parent and I have a kid and I'm a, I'm a musician. I still teach them how to walk, talk, brush their teeth, uh, go to the toilet, all of that stuff. And then even maybe they're in their 20s and I'm still helping them out with playing the piano. So maybe I have specialties that are going to help that. But I don't expect them to go, well, hold up. You can't go to university to learn economics. You're learning music with me. So uh, I'm, I'm getting really lost in this uh, analogy. No, no, I'm, I'm trying to it, say. Yeah, yeah. It's the first time I've got this analogy and I really like it. I make a similar one, but yours is, uh, yours is a better thing. I make it as like, I'm, I'm not so much a jiu-jitsu I'm like a jiu-jitsu journalist. I'm going to go and get you kind of all of the information and I'm going to filter it down to something that you can understand at your level. Yeah, that um, is what we do. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, whereas like, I'm not like a historian kind of thing, but I like, I'm a like a, I say you're Dan Carlin's podcast, yeah. right? He's not a historian, but he learns about history and then he gives it to you in a form that you can understand at yeah, your level. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. Yeah. But I think um, when, when someone gets to the level, no good grappler, I'm pretty certain, and there may be some anomalies, but for the most part, all good grapplers from purple onwards probably are receiving knowledge of jiu-jitsu from someone other than their head coach. Yeah. Either they're watching Instagram clips, they're watching YouTube, they're buying the instructionals, they're sharing techniques with their friends on the mat, they're teaching themselves. If if you're not teaching yourself a little bit by an end of blue belt, then you've mm. got a problem. But once you're uh, purple, brown, black, you have to be doing that stuff. Otherwise, you're not going to reach the... the you, 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 you'll just end up becoming a carbon copy of your instructor and then you lose the beauty of jiu-jitsu, which yeah. is you, the individuality. You should be like a, a shittier version of them, probably, because you're trying to be something that you're not. Yeah. Like you're trying to be someone you're not. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation now. I want to be respectful of your time. We're going to make some food. It, so, Absolutely. Um, anytime you're back up in the, in the north, we'd love to have you again. No, thank you very and, much um, for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Awesome, dude. Thank you very much. Cheers.